Well, I'd ask you if you would take your copy of God's Word, and if you're able, please stand with me as we read together Psalm 111. It will take less time to read Psalm 111 than it took to read Psalm 119 last week. It is an equally sweet song that talks about the wonder-working God that we serve. Psalm 111. Hallelujah. I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. All that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. He has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. Well, have you thought much about your liver recently? For most of us, the answer to that question is no, but this past Sunday, I did listen to a fascinating lecture on the liver, and I was amazed by the, the way this organ in our body works. It, it actually works as something of the command center for the body in terms of organizing how the body processes the food that we digest. So the, the food that's in our blood, the fats and carbohydrates and starches and proteins, the, the liver really works to organize where they go and how that serves the body. Another function of the liver is to take toxins out of our blood so that we're not poisoned by those toxins. So it kind of filters our blood for us, and that's pretty important. But the most amazing fact that I learned about the liver this past week was the fact that it is the only organ in our body that is able to regenerate. So that even if if half of the liver is injured, it can actually regrow back to 100% in terms of you know, size and its ability to function. And isn't it fascinating to think that the organ that is responsible to deal with toxins and poisons in our blood is also the only organ that's able to regenerate and grow so that it's not destroyed by those toxins. You see, our God does all things well. Uh, He's amazing in his works, even his little works, like the liver, it's done in a manner worthy of him. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Even the little things of God are great. Well, we're studying Psalm 111, and it is a psalm that focuses on the wonderful works of God. It calls our our minds to kind of gaze and look upon God and look upon the things that he has done generally and also in behalf of his people. It's a psalm that encourages us to fill our lives with praise to God for his works. That's, That's something that should characterize us not only on Sunday morning, but all throughout the week, that we would be focused on the wonderful works of God and praising God for the works that he has done. We would do that now, and we'll see we should do that forever. Psalm 111 is, again, a sweet song. It's in some ways like Psalm 119, which we studied last week, in the sense that Psalm 119 is an acrostic psalm. You remember we worked our way through the Hebrew alphabet as we worked through the 22 sections of Psalm 119. Well, Psalm 111 is obviously shorter than Psalm 119. 
And yet, except for the word hallelujah, that beginning words, command of praise at the beginning of the psalm, each line of the psalm in the Hebrew works its way through the Hebrew alphabet. It's a way of remembering these truths about God. It's a way of praising God in a structured way. We don't know a lot about Psalm 111. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know when it was written. We don't know if there was anything going on in the life of the psalmist that may have called him to write this psalm in this way at this time. But it's really clear what the focus of this psalm is. The focus of this psalm is on the wonderful works of God. So his works, his acts, his marvels, his deeds, the glorious things that God has done. This psalm calls us to gaze upon those things, both in terms of what God's done in creation, yes, but also in terms of what he's done in redemption for his people and the salvation that he has given to us in Jesus Christ. We're going to study the psalm this morning using three points, if you're taking notes. So three points from Psalm 111. First, we're going to see a proclamation of praise. We're going to see that in verse 1. Second, we're going to see many reasons for praise. Most of this psalm is just kind of a list of things that the Lord has done. We'll see that in verses 2 to 9. Many reasons for praise. And then third, we're going to see the impact of praise when we look at verse 10. Let's look at that first point together this morning. A proclamation of praise. Take your copy of God's word and look with me, if you will, at verse 1 again. Psalmist says, Hallelujah. I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So the psalm begins with that familiar word, Hallelujah. Again, in the Hebrew, that is a command. It's a word that says, Praise the Lord. And that's really the keynote of this psalm. That's what this psalm is about. It is a call to the people of God to praise the Lord for what he has done. Now, in the second part of verse 1, the psalmist says that he himself will praise the Lord. He makes a proclamation. I will praise the Lord. There's intentionality here. Uh, He's determined to do this. He's kind of establishing himself in his heart to praise God. And notice that the psalmist wasn't content with kind of a, a cold, formalistic outward worship of God, as if God wants us just to mumble the correct words at the correct time. No, he says he'll praise God with all of his heart. In other words, the psalmist knew that praise is something that should take up the whole man. Uh, It should take up your intellect. You should be thoughtful in how you praise God. It should take up your will. This is determination to praise God. It should take up your emotions. You should be overwhelmed by the glory of this God, and you should worship him in a way that shows that your heart is in it. And notice where the psalmist said he would praise the Lord at the end of verse 1. He says, in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Now, some commentators think that the assembly of the upright were kind of a, a group of Israelites who were truly faithful, truly righteous in God's eyes. And the congregation, well, that's just talking about the people of Israel more broadly, so that the psalmist is saying he's going to worship God amidst these two groups of people, like two different sets of people. That's certainly possible. But as you study Hebrew poetry, you'll learn that over time it uses repetition, uh, it uses parallels, and so it's probably best to understand the assembly of the righteous and the congregation to be synonymous. The main point is that the psalmist is saying he wants to worship God among the people of God, that that's significant. We're going to talk about this, that when we gather together as the people of God to worship, that it's significant. Let me give you two observations and two applications from this before we move on. First, praise is not optional for God's people. That's the first observation. Praise is not optional 
for God's people. We see that in that word hallelujah. It is a command. Praise the Lord. Uh, So it is a privilege, right? Praising the Lord is a privilege to have a relationship with him where you know him and love him and you want to praise him. That's a privilege, but it is also a sacred duty. And so when we gather together on Sunday morning, we're coming. Yes, we're coming uh, because it is a privilege, but we're also coming because we've been commanded to praise the Lord. And praise is obviously something that should characterize us every day of our lives, The Lord cares what we do on Sunday mornings. Yes, he cares what we do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday as well. A second observation, God desires heartfelt praise from his people. You see that when the psalmist said, I will praise the Lord with all my heart. Uh, In the Hebrew mindset, the heart was really the kind of the center of the person. It's who the person is on the inside. So the psalmist is saying, when he says, I'll praise the Lord with all my heart, he's saying he's going to worship the Lord with all he has and all he is. Again, it's this kind of whole orb, full orb worship of God where the whole man or the whole woman is taken up in praise of God. And, And brothers and sisters, that's what God desires from us. He's not looking for empty lip service. Like if you come to church and you think that these people believe that there's just some deity up there, that just, you know, he has rules. And one of the rules is that you come together, you know, for a few hours each week and you say words. That's not at all the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is personal and he loves us and he wants us to love him and worship him. And he is worthy of that with all that we have and all that we are. That means that God is not satisfied. Listen, if we merely go through the motions. Now, I understand because I'm a human too, that our emotions are sometimes, they're a little dumb. They don't do what they should do. And sometimes Satan comes in and he says, well, you don't feel like worshiping God this morning, so you'd be a hypocrite if you do so. I think the psalmist is telling us, no, no, no. We need to have a determination to stir ourselves up, including our emotions, and says, he's glorious. I'm going to obey. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to let my emotions catch up to what I know is true. And then you worship God with all you have and all you are. God is not impressed if we simply parrot words while our minds are a million miles away. He wants us to consider the glory of who he is and be blown away by that. And then he wants us to respond. Worship is a response to God, to what he's revealed about himself to us. Now, an application, those in spiritual leadership have a responsibility to set a pattern of praise for God's people to follow. That's what the psalmist is doing here. The psalmist is in a position of spiritual leadership. What does he do? Well, he's not commanding the people of Israel to do something that he's unwilling to do. Uh, He's actually leading the people. He's going out before them saying, I will praise the Lord. And he's giving them an example to follow in terms of what it should look like for them to praise the Lord as well. And that is a good pattern for those who are in spiritual leadership. So pastors in the church should set an example of heartfelt kind of full-orbed praise of God. It's a responsibility we have to be leading the people of God in that way. So Adam and Bryce and Dan and Rob and I, we shouldn't come to church and mumble a few words you know, kind of look around distractedly. When people are praying, we shouldn't be thinking about other things. Our hearts should be engaged. Our minds should be engaged. We should lean in and focus our hearts, right? When, when we're worshiping together through song, we should be leaning in and worshiping in that way as well. When God's word is being preached, we should be engaged in that with our minds and our hearts. 
by God's grace, setting examples for others in the church. You know, we need to do this for the good of our own souls. You know, sometimes pastors can be very, very spiritually dry. But they have to look a particular way on Sunday morning, so you'd never know it, at least not for a while. You'll see it eventually. Eventually, you won't be able to hide that anymore, right? Pastors need to stir themselves up by God's grace to lead from the heart and set an example for the people of God. Parents, there's a good word for you here as well, because you're in a place of spiritual authority and leadership in your home. And you need to set an example of worship for your children. So when your children see you sing on Sunday mornings, what are they seeing? They're seeing you. What are they seeing? Are they seeing you engaged? Is your heart full of love and praise for God? Or are you going through the motions? Are you leading them in the study and reading of God's word at home? Are you guiding them in that way? Are you attentive when God's word is being preached? If so, by God's grace, you can praise God because his grace is at work in you and your children will be blessed by your example. So much more is caught than taught. That's simply true. But if not, then God's word for us this morning is this, repent. That's the goodness of the gospel. The goodness of the gospel is right now, Christ has done all that's necessary for you to say, I have not been leading my home the way I should And I'm going to turn from that and I'm going to turn to Jesus and I'm going to press into following Jesus before them, set any example for them. And by God's grace through the gospel, you can do that this morning. And that's my prayer for for us as parents, particularly for fathers in our church. A second application in a special way, we should long to gather with God's people on the Lord's day. This is a special day. This is the day that we remember the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the day when the church has been gathering together to praise our resurrected Jesus for the past 2,000 years. And notice what the psalmist says. He says, I will praise the Lord with all my heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Clearly, the psalmist wanted to be with the people of God, praising God. That's where he wanted to be. That was on his heart. Now, we should be praising the Lord throughout the week, right? If we're going down the road, we should be singing songs of praise to God. We should, we should be filled with worship to God. Yet yeah, all that is true, but, but the Lord's day is special. How is it special? Because we have gathered together as a local church, and the Lord Jesus is present with us by his Holy Spirit in a special way. Yeah, the Lord Jesus is really the leader of this church. He governs his church through his word. And when we gather to worship him, we have the privilege of doing that in his presence in a special way. Uh, What a blessing that is. Now, some some Christians don't seem to to get this. They they seem to be willing to come to church when they don't have something better to do. But that's the wrong perspective. We see that here. There should be this longing to be with the people of God. So sometimes we are providentially hindered from being at church. We understand that. But our hearts should lean in towards being with the people of God on the Lord's day to worship the Lord together, to be reminded of the gospel, to be refreshed by fellowship and song and prayer. That's a blessing. You know, the the older I have gotten, the more I've walked with Jesus. This is this has just become sweeter to me. Perhaps that's been your experience as well. I use a book in premarital counseling, and in that book, the, the, the counselor, he, he advises the couples to, to make it their, their goal 
to attend church 48 out of 52 weeks a year. Now, I can't give any kind of hard number. There's no law here. But what he's trying to do in the lives of a young couple is establishing a pattern of being present. Now, that's important. So I would commend that to you. Be present. Lean in to being present and come with a heart full of praise for God. So that's what we see. Verse 1, the psalmist gives a proclamation that he will praise the Lord. Now, let's look at our second point. Many reasons to praise the Lord. We'll see this as we look through verses 2 to 9. But just to begin, uh, the tiny hummingbird flaps its wings between 10 and 200 times per second and can fly 60 miles an hour at times, even though it weighs 0.1 or 0.2 ounces. That's pretty amazing. Scientists tell us that the sun burns at 10,000 degrees Fahrenheit at the surface and some 27 million degrees at the core. It's been burning for thousands of years, even though every 1.5, listen, millionths of a second, so that's a really short amount of time, the sun releases more energy than all humans will consume in an entire year. That's pretty significant. The Red Sea is 1,200 miles long. It's some 190 miles wide at its widest point. We don't know where this happened, but the Bible tells us at some point when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt, God stepped in and he divided that vast body of water so they, they were able to walk across on dry ground. And when the armies of Pharaoh tried it, they were drowned. It's one of the greatest miracles of the Exodus. And all of these things, from the, from the tiny hummingbird to the blazing sun to the rescue that is Exodus, all of these things are works of God. And they are to be studied by those who delight in them. So let's do that. Let's look at these works of God that we find in these verses. Verses 2 to 9. Look first at verse 2. The Lord's works are great, studied by all who delight in them. Now verses 2 and 3, the psalmist is going to focus on the works of God more generally. And that's how he begins. The works of God, they're great. The Lord's works are great. And they're great in the sense that they're marvelous. That they're awe-inspiring. And it isn't only some of God's works. It's all that God has done. All that he's done is great. So the adoring crowd said of Jesus, he has done all things well when he cured the person who was both mute and deaf. And we can say the same thing more generally of our God. He has done all things well. All of his works are great. So his act of creating all there is out of nothing over the course of six days, that is a great act of power creating men and women in his image with equal worth and dignity. But with this unique capacity to know God, uh, it's why we're not animals. You have to understand that you're not an animal. If, uh, if your science teacher tells you you're an animal, you're not an animal. You're made in God's image. You're distinct. You have a capacity for a relationship with God that animals do not have. It's an amazing act of creation. It's a glorious act. God's act of destroying the whole world with a flood was a display of his perfect wisdom and justice and power. And as terrible as that act was, it was still great. Now, theologians have typically divided the works of God into three. His works of creation, his works of providence, and his works of grace. And creation speaks of that great act of God where he brought all things into existence out of nothing. And when you think of the beauty of the tree or the wonder of the water cycle, or, the, or the, the wonder of flight of birds. You can see that God's creation, it's great. 
God's work of providence speaks of the way God upholds his creation. He upholds it so that it continues. And he also guides history according to his perfect and eternal will. So to borrow the imagery that Corey Tim Boom often used about the tapestry, God's providence is like a tapestry where he's the master weaver and he has this vast design that's been, if you will, so to speak, in his mind from eternity past. And he is guiding all the events of history the light strands and the dark strands, the the good and the evil. He's the master guiding all of these things according to his perfect will, weaving this beautiful picture, and we can't see it. We only see just a little snippet of it. We're looking at the underside of the tapestry. Everything seems to be going in disarray, going here and there. We don't think, it doesn't look like anything is in control or under control, and yet it is. Why? Because God's providential work of history is going on day after day, year after year, century after century, and the tapestry is being woven. And you're a part of that. And God's works are great. Grace speaks of the way God acts in history to save his people. It includes the call of Abraham, who was an idolater. It includes the rescue of Israel through the Exodus and and from their later deportation to Babylon. Most especially, though, God's grace has come to us in the form of a person, Jesus Christ. And it is through Jesus that God has worked a a perfect and eternal redemption for us, so that we have been reconciled to God, so that we've been brought out of slavery and brought into a right relationship with God. Slavery to sin, that's been done away. Why? Because of the grace of our God. Now, because all of God's works are great, in the second part of verse 2, the psalmist says that they are, they, are those, they are studied by those who delight in them. And the idea is that when we realize how glorious our God is, and it really can if you've never done it, you just pick up a systematic theology, and it's kind of tough at first, but you just read through it, you will be amazed at the grandeur of the truth you see there. Better yet, pick up your Bible and read Isaiah 40. And think about the glory of God to whom all the nations are just dust on the scale. They're insignificant. You'll be amazed. And all that God has done is glorious. And it is studied by those who delight in them. Spurgeon said, the devout naturalist ransacks nature. The earnest student of history pries into hidden facts and dark stories. And the man of God digs into the minds of scripture and hoards up each grain of its golden truth. You cannot preach a sermon on the songs without quoting Spurgeon from Treasury of David, because he's a faithful brother. Look at verse 3. The psalmist continues to praise God for his works. He says, all that he does is splendid and majestic. His righteousness endures forever. So notice once again, the psalmist is repeating this theme of the fact that God's works are splendid. They're majestic. They should catch your eye. Even Even the tiniest of God's works, like the human cell, it's a work of God, and it's worthy of him. And now look at the end of verse 3. God's work also displays his righteousness. The idea is that all God does is right. All God does is just. That's particularly true of redemption. Where we were sinful and separated from him, but God in his matchless wisdom uh, made a way for him to be just and for us to be justified. For his perfect justice to be established and for us to be rescued from the penalty of our sin. He's the one who is just and the justifier. Now, let me, let me ask us a question at this point before we move on. If the works of God are studied by those who delight in them, why is it that we don't study the works of God more? 
What keeps us from doing this? Why don't we spend more time meditating on and rejoicing in God's works of creation and providence and grace? Well, part of the problem is sin, right? Sin is at work within us. Uh, The flesh, kind of the unredeemed humanity that remains, it it hates God and the things of God so that we can watch a two-hour movie and be wide awake, but when we open up the Bible and try to read it, all of a sudden we feel tired and we start to yawn, and our mind seems to lack focus. Sin is part of the problem, for sure. But another part of the problem is that we live in a distracted age. I'm just seeing this more and more in my own life. I'm seeing this more and more broadly in our culture. Our lives are literally lived at a fever pitch. We're like ants whose hill has just been destroyed. Have you seen that? The hill is destroyed, and the ants are just running here and there trying to figure out what's going on. Far too much of the time, that's what our lives feel like. And the media clips and the sound bites, they keep coming at us just as fast. We're so busy running here and there, watching the latest news, hearing the latest song, staring at our phones, that we have no time to think deeply about the wonderful works of God. I think that's true. We live in a distracted age and we are distracted. But Psalm 111 is telling us God's works are great. They're studied by those who delight in them. There's goodness here. That means we need to slow down if we can. We need to slow down to make time to study the wonderful works of God and to praise him for those works. You know, perhaps you're a mother of young children and you think, well, that's laughable. I can't slow down because I have these children to care for. We understand that. You're in a very busy season, but you know, even a few minutes of focus on God, just a glimpse of God's glory can sustain you through the day that feels mundane and terribly busy at the same time. All of us need to make time to meditate on God, on his goodness, on his character, on his works. Now, looking at verse 4 to 9, something happens in the psalm. You notice there's a change. Again, verse 2 and 3, he's speaking more generally about the works themselves. But now, in verses 4 to 9, the the verb tenses change, and he starts using the past tense now because he's reminding the people of Israel, the Old Testament people of God, about the things that God has done for them in particular in these verses. In verse 4, the psalmist says, "...he has caused his wondrous works to be remembered." The Lord is gracious and compassionate. How has God caused his works to be remembered? Well, in his wisdom, he had it written down for us in scripture so that we can read about what happened at creation, so that we can read about the flood, so that we can read about Abraham and the Exodus and think about the wonderful works of God. And and that is exactly, of course, what the psalmist is doing in verses five to nine. He's going to list the wonderful works of God that God did for the people of Israel so that the people of God could praise him for those works. In verse 5, the psalmist reminds the people of Israel about the manna that God provided for their ancestors when they were in the wilderness. It says he has provided food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. The word translated food there, it, it speaks of word that is acquired without labor, without cultivation. And that's precisely what manna was, is a display of God's power at the right time when the people of Israel needed bread in the wilderness. God, as it were, opened the windows of heaven and the bread of angels fell down and they ate. Many of us can recall ways the Lord has provided for us when we truly needed it. I remember a particular time of difficulty for my family when I was a young child and we were coming back from church 
And it was a difficult season, and, and you know, we were kind of struggling, and we turned the corner and we saw groceries on our front porch because God provided for us. And in that instance, it was food. Some of you have experienced something like that. Uh, we had some difficult years, and yet I remember that the Lord always provided for us. We never lacked because he provides for his people. Verse 6, the psalmist reminds God's people about the way God defeated their enemies when they went into the promised land and took on nations that were greater and more numerous than them. He says, he has shown his people the power of his works by giving them the inheritance of the nations so that they were able to establish Israel as their land. And in a slightly different way, our prayer as a church should be that God would give us an inheritance among the nations so that as we see work done in Hungary and Romania and North Africa and Central Asia, we will see men and women who would be converts from those nations coming to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. We sang about that earlier when we sang, May the peoples praise you. Such a good prayer from our hearts. May the peoples praise you. Verses 7 and 8, the psalmist reminds God's people about the, the word, the law that God gave them at Mount Sinai. It says, the works of his hands are truth and justice. All his instructions are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever, enacted in truth and in uprightness. And the law was given to instruct God's people and the character of God and what it looks like to worship him rightly. And Jesus says, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will disappear from the law until all has been accomplished. The word redemption there in verse 9 is significant. It takes us to the next act of God or work of God that the psalmist was bringing before the people. And this is in many ways kind of the, uh, the seminal and, and, and uh, most majestic act of God in the Old Testament. And this is his act of redemption when he brought them out of slavery in Egypt into freedom to serve him in the promised land. Verse 9 says, he has sent redemption to his people. He has ordained his covenant forever. His name is holy and awe-inspiring. That word redemption speaks of buying someone out of slavery so that they're now free. Buying them out of slavery in a way that they won't be enslaved again. It was used, of course, in the practice of buying uh, freedom or purchasing freedom for those who had been enslaved so that they would be free. And that is precisely what God did for the Old Testament people of Israel. They were enslaved in Egypt and he brought them out of that slavery. He redeemed them so that they would be free we're going to study more about that great work this fall when we study the book of Exodus together. But as Christians, New Testament believers on this side of the cross, we should focus on that word redemption and see even more glory there. Because the Exodus of the Old Testament was a great salvation, but it wasn't the ultimate. Ultimately, it pointed forward to a greater salvation, and that's the salvation that we have received in Jesus Christ. Because we were those who were enslaved to our sins. We were those who were under the judgment of God. And there was no way for us to free ourselves. But Christ came. And Christ paid the price of our redemption. So that we would be set free. Listen. Never to be enslaved to our sin again. And that is the very heart of Christianity. We're, about, we're now at the very heart of our faith. If you want to understand what Christianity is about, it is not a list of do's and don'ts. 
It is not simply a religious system or philosophy to help you have a better life. Christianity is most especially about the way that God has rescued his people, that he has redeemed his people out of slavery because we were born in sin. And we were enslaved to it from our earliest moments. And sin made us not want to worship and serve God who loves us and created us, but instead kind of turns us in on ourselves so that we want to serve ourselves and live for ourselves. And it leads us to break God's commands and it leads us to sin against others in countless ways. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that is the great problem that faces humanity. The great problem, the greatest problem is not hunger, political disorder, wars. Those are problems, but all those problems flow out of this greater problem, which is the brokenness of mankind and his relationship with God and the slavery we are under because of our sin. And that is precisely what Jesus came to fix. The eternal Son of God came into this world as a man. He lived a perfect life, always obeying the will of his heavenly Father. On mission, the mission to what? To redeem his people from their sins, to lay down his life. And that's what he did on the cross. On the cross, he bore in himself the wrath of God against the sins of all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. He, on the cross, purchased, as it were, a people for God out of slavery so that we might belong to God and serve him in joy forever and ever and ever. Jesus died, but listen, he rose from the dead. And that fact makes Christianity a historical truth. Something, if you've never wrestled with what Christianity is, you've got to wrestle with that. What does it mean in space and time history that Jesus rose from the dead? Friend, it means this. It means he is who he claimed to be. And the good news is that this Savior came so that we might have life. And the appeal to you this morning is that you would turn from your sins and trust in him. Because if you do so, trusting not in yourself, what you can do to make yourself right with God, but in what he has done on the cross, you will be forgiven for your sins. Christ will be your savior. God will look at you as if you live Jesus's perfect life and you will be free. Friend, we'd love to talk with you more about what God has done for us and how you can experience the the blessing of the redemption that is offered in Christ this morning. You can talk with me after the service, or really with anyone sitting around you. We'd love to talk with you about that this morning. Christ Fellowship, listen, the cross of Jesus Christ is the center of all of God's works. Why are we so focused on the cross? Because that's the hinge point of history. That's the center. That's the great act that is bringing out now God's purpose of restoring all things forever and ever and ever. No wonder Paul said that he would glory in the cross of Christ. And like Paul, we should meditate on what Christ has done for us. Now, one observation before we move on from this section about the wonderful works of God, and it's this, Christians are wonderful works of God. What do I mean by that? I mean, brothers and sisters, don't underestimate the wonder of what it means to be a Christian. And I don't say that from a standpoint of pride. I say that from a standpoint of what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a Christian. Mike Konetsky read it for us earlier. If any man is in Christ, he's what? A new creation. The old has passed away. See, the new has come. What I'm saying is that when someone becomes a Christian, I'm not saying Christianee, they just put the veneer of Christianity on their lives. I'm saying born from heaven. 
I'm saying the life of God flows through them. I'm saying they were dead in trespasses and sins, and now they're alive. I'm saying when that happens, it is a tremendous work of God. And every single Christian on earth is an example of that work. By some counts, there are 660 million evangelicals in the world. I don't think that number is accurate. Still, there are hundreds of millions of genuinely born-again people on this earth today, and that is significant. And each one is a wonderful work of God, a new creation in Christ. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to send on, on the membership interviews with people who are becoming members of the church, because in those interviews, I get to hear about the work of God in their life. I get to hear who they used to be, I get to hear what Jesus did for them and who he's making them to be. I get to hear those stories over and over. And it is such an encouragement for my soul. Some of us he, he brought out of drugs and alcohol. Some of us he rescued from living for success and for status. Some of us he rescued from legalism and a, a Christianity that's based on doing things for God, not receiving grace from him. Some of us he rescued when we were children at a precious age. Each story of conversion is unique, and each story is a testament to the reality that Christians are wonderful works of God. And my encouragement for you, brothers and sisters, Christ Fellowship, is get in on the goodness of that by asking one another your testimonies of how you became a Christian. It's one of the sweetest things you can do is just you meet a new person, you just say, hey, you know, sweet thing to do as we spend time with one another. How did you become a Christian? It's a good question to ask. We're looking at verses 2 to 9. We've seen many reasons to praise God. More briefly, verse 10, the impact of praise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All who follow his instructions have good insight. His praise endures forever. So here we see what happens when God's people are confronted with God's wonderful works. When they meditate on God's wonderful works, they are impacted as they consider the, the might, the wisdom, the glory of God and all that he has done, something changes in their perspective of themselves. They become smaller and God becomes bigger. And we realize more and more that this world isn't about me and what I want, but ultimately it's about this God of vast glory. And a growing reverence takes place in their hearts, a fear, a right awe, a right respect, a right regard for this glorious God. And of course, the psalmist says at the beginning, what? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that truth is repeated throughout many places in the Old Testament. You see, if the God of the Bible exists, is if he is truly who the Bible says he is, well, it is wise to worship him as the glorious God. And it is folly to ignore him. It's foolishness to live as if there is no God when there is. Our God does exist. Our God is great and glorious. Our God has done all that is necessary to reveal his glory, most especially through his son. What more could God do than enter this world as a man to redeem humanity through the cross? Well, there's wisdom in fearing this God W.S. Plummer was a commentator in the 19th century. He said, there is no wisdom in men till they fear God. When they do fear God, that is the wisest thing they do. I think that's true. So friend, what about you? Have you considered the works of God? 
Have you meditated and thought about the wonder of his creation, the the wisdom that you see in his providence, the love that you see in his saving grace? If so, have you felt a, a respect in your soul growing for this God? An awareness of his bigness and of your smallness? If so, be glad. Why? Because God is teaching you wisdom. He's teaching you wisdom so that you'll live well. And as you continue to walk with this God, he will continue to teach you wisdom as he walks with you. Well, let's conclude. We've seen from Psalm 111 that the heart of Christianity, look, at the heart, it's not just some cold philosophy. It's not some legalistic relationship about how to appease a deity out there. No, at the heart of Christianity is this. It is this wonder at the God of wonders. And it's praising him for who he is and for what he has done. Whether they're small or great, God's works are marvelous. They've been done through the ages. They extend everywhere in the world. And they will continue until they're brought to consummation in the new heaven and the new earth. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ, you will see that with your own eyes. Praise God. And let's praise him together this week. Let's pray.